Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to remember those in prison for their faith. Scripture says, as though you were in prison with them. You and I would remember and probably be more faithful praying for people that are locked up for their faith in Canada or wherever else they may be if it was actually one of us who was in prison. So let's be faithful to pray. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 26. Uh, If you have a copy of a Genesis journal that we gave out, that's on page 110. If you do not have a copy of one of those journals and would like one, uh, we can give you one as a gift if you just raise your hand. Uh, But it's just the book of Genesis in a book with a place to take notes. So page 110 in that journal, or if you're using your Bible, start at the very beginning and flip a few pages to your right. We are uh, continuing in our study of the book of Genesis. You may remember that we did a whole series of the life of Abraham, and we talked about how this covenant that God made with Abraham was a covenant that is rooted in faith and that we are actually Abraham's offspring if we share the same faith of Abraham in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the coming offspring that was promised to Abram. And Abraham believed God, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And he is the example in the Scriptures that God uses most to point to what it looks like to being justified by God, declared righteous by God on the basis of faith in Jesus, not of your own works, but completely of his grace and kindness as a gift. And included in the promises made to Abraham was Believers being indwelt by the Spirit of God and being adopted as the very sons and daughters of the living God if we share Abraham's same faith in Jesus. Today, we are in chapter 26. It's an account of Isaac's life and God establishing his covenant with Isaac. So I want to read this chapter almost in its entirety. But before we do, let's pray and ask God to open his word to us. Father, we thank you that you are the almighty God. Lord, we pray that wherever your word is proclaimed this morning, both in this place and into homes by video and in other churches around this land, that you would speak for your name's sake, that your spirit would come and enliven our hearts and open our eyes and give us revelation of the knowledge of God. None of us can see apart from your gracious touch. We cannot hear apart from you opening our ears and our hearts will remain cold and indifferent to your word unless you come and stoke the flame in us. So I pray that none of us would be unmoved or unchanged, Father, that we would be responsive and humble before your word, a people who tremble before the word of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we go. This is the word of God. Genesis 26, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. 
I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give, you your, give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over, they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahazath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done anything have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Okay, so this chapter upon first reading is pretty mysteriously placed. You have at the end of chapter 25, the birth of Jacob and Esau, and then you have God's word at their birth about uh, Jacob would rule over Esau and the older would serve the younger. 
And then you have Esau despising his birthright, trading it for a bowl of stew. Then in chapter 27, you have Jacob cheating Esau out of the blessing of the firstborn. And right in the middle of these two chapters that seemed like they would have fit together perfectly like a puzzle piece, in the middle, you have this account of Isaac. And some commentators even say that this account actually predates the birth of the twins because how else would they have been able to act like they weren't married with kids running around? Now, at the end of the chapter, it says that Esau was 40 years old when he took a wife. So I don't know if people could conclude that my parents aren't married just because I'm not in the house. But either way, this chapter of this account of Isaac's life seems to be inserted here. And the question is, why? And the answer is that God is extending and establishing his covenant with Isaac, the child of promise, and he's blessing Isaac in the land of promise. So up to this point, all of the promises of God have been about Isaac, but not to Isaac himself. And now we're seeing in this chapter the most detail that you'll ever see of the life of Isaac himself. It's one of the patriarchs that we know the very least about. So what I want to do is give you a brief overview of the different scenes of this chapter in showing how it echoes the life of Abraham. And then we're going to circle back through and pull out some lessons that um, I believe the Lord wants to teach us from the life of Isaac. So first, uh, one of the main things that the writer of Genesis is doing is showing you that this is Abraham Jr., this is, you're supposed to read this and see, this is Isaac's son. These same accounts that are happening. This is echoes of the life of Abraham. So from the outset, you see a famine. It's not just a famine. It's besides the famine that was in the days of Abraham. So he's, he's already referring back to Abraham. And Abraham's mentioned more in this chapter than he will be in the rest of Genesis. So this is this transitional chapter. The wording of God's promise to Isaac in verses three through five are almost verbatim of his promise to Abraham after the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. And the emphasis is clear. This is Abraham's son. You're supposed to hear this and recall God's promise to Abraham that God's promises were to Abraham and to his offspring. So we see at the beginning of 26 that Isaac is not just blessed. He's blessed for the sake of his father, Abraham. Here he's given the same promises that Abraham has given, but here for the first time, it's to Isaac, not just about Isaac. And God is establishing his covenant with Abraham that no longer would God just be called the God of Abraham. He's now the God of Abraham and Isaac. He is Isaac's God now. His faith is now his own, and God's establishing his relationship and his covenant with Isaac himself. But the echoing of the life of Abraham doesn't stop there. You have this whole she's my sister episode. You're reading this, and if you had just been reading Genesis straight through, you'd have seen that Abraham does the exact same thing in Genesis chapter 12 when he goes down to Egypt, and he does the same thing in Genesis chapter 20 uh, with, not coincidentally, a king of Gerar whose name was Abimelech. Now, Abimelech most likely is a title for the king of Gerar, like Pharaoh is a title for the king of Egypt. So this is not the same Abimelech as in the days of Abraham, but the same title, the same position. And in that chapter, 
where Abraham lies about Sarah to the king of Jar, God reproves the king in a dream and warns him not to touch her and to send Abraham away in peace. And Abraham is sent away with the protection from the king and with great resources and blessing. In the same way, in this chapter, you see Isaac follows suit and goes right along with the sins of his father. It says that they live that way for a long time. That he hides the fact that Rebekah is his wife and he does it out of self-preservation and fear, just like his dad did. And his fears, we're going to dive into this in a little bit. His fears proved to be unsubstantiated. And like his father, he's sent away with the protection of the king and with great blessing. So then you go on from this scene and you have these recurring instances of quarreling over wells, the building of wells, quarreling over wells, and these covenants that are made with the people of the land. So in Abraham's instance in Genesis chapter 21, um, you have Abimelech acknowledging the blessing of God on Abraham. So God blesses him in such a way that, that the king can see this. And he says, surely God has blessed you. And then Abraham reproves Abimelech about a well. And their servants are fighting over a well. And so they make a covenant together. And Abraham actually plants a tree at a place called Beersheba, which means the well of the oath, where they make this covenant. And it's the same place that Isaac goes back to here. He goes to Beersheba. And at both instances, they both go to Beersheba. God demonstrates his faithfulness in their making a covenant with their enemies who are coming against them. And they both there at Beersheba call upon the name of the Lord. And so over and over again, you see these, these echoing that Isaac is Abraham's son, and he's sort of following the path before him that even his father had laid out. But just as God was with Abraham, so now he also is with Isaac and is establishing his covenant with Isaac. So I want to look at five particular lessons from the life of Isaac from this chapter for us going back to the beginning. The first that I believe God wants to show us this morning is that God will orchestrate and use trials to build our faith and to glorify his good name. I'm going to say that again because I know that was long. God will orchestrate and use trials, those are both important words, to build our faith and to glorify his good name. Now, the scene of this chapter is famine. David referred to this last week when Esau coming in hungry from the field and talking about how we don't even understand this term hunger and what Esau must have been feeling coming in from the field. But we for sure in our society have to go online and look at pictures of famines that have happened in India and in Africa to even understand and get a picture for what is actually being talked about. But this is not just they didn't know where they were going to get their next meal. This was scarcity of food all over the entire land. And you got to put yourself in Isaac's shoes. This is happening in the land of promise. This is happening in the place where God had promised his blessing, and he promised that he would multiply his offspring. But how can you multiply offspring if you're not allowed to, uh, alive to see it? So I want to highlight, though, that this is not an accident. I was reading in Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah, God speaks of sending rain on one city and not another to produce repentance in the one that he was withholding rain from. He even talks about sending rain on one field and not another. 
So God sends forth his reign and his blessings from the earth with pinpoint accuracy. So the fact that he was experiencing a famine in the land was not an accident. In Psalm 65, verse 9, David sings to God saying, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. So in this instance, God had emphatically and specifically not prepared it. Instead, he had allowed there to be a famine. Now, when God appears to Isaac, the very first words out of his mouth were, do not go down to Egypt. Now, this is what his father had done. But Egypt, just in itself, represents man-made irrigation systems, right? So all of their water supply and all of their provision comes not from the blessing from heaven, from the rain, but from the irrigation systems that man had built from the Nile. And so they, he was being told, don't go try to find a workaround solution, a man-made solution around this trial, but I will be with you. I will be with you in the midst of the trial. And it's, it's important to note, anytime you see the first instances or the first mentions of something in the Bible, it's significant. This is the very first instance in the Bible of God telling a man directly, I will be with you. And the promise of God's presence comes to a man in the midst of a famine. And I think that that is significant, that oftentimes God will orchestrate circumstances in our lives so that the trust that we have in our five senses actually bow in submission to faith in God and in His presence. That His presence is actually better than rain, better than food, better than the things that we look to for comfort, for satisfaction, or security. And so God says, don't go try to find a workaround to this lack of comfort or to this financial hardship that I've given you or to this challenge that I've put in your way, this obstacle is from me. Don't just try to find a workaround that involves no faith, but trust me, and I am with you. Now, I have as a little aside that it, it is a mark of spiritual maturity and a great need of ours to value spiritual realities like God does so that we're able to count his means of producing these realities by joy, as joy. That, so James talks about considering various trials as joy, knowing that God's using them to produce maturity in us, to produce endurance and steadfastness in us. So this, this could be a whole message. I'm giving you a two-minute aside. We need to value God putting his glory on display like God does. And in whatever way God chooses, like God does. So here, God has his specific means and purpose for causing a famine and Isaac living in a famine in the land of promise. And he is going to use that to demonstrate his glory in a very clear and miraculous way. And that is worth the suffering that Isaac and Rebekah endured for God to display the glory in the way that he does. It, it, he's also teaching Isaac to trust him. Just like in the trials of your life, he's teaching you to trust him. And that spiritual formation that happens in your life is worth more than the discomfort of the suffering that you're enduring. That we have a glory that is being prepared for us actually by the sufferings and through the sufferings that is worth more, worth more, Paul says, 
than the suffering that you're enduring at the present time. It's doing something. It's producing something. And so one of the things that God is doing is, is giving you an appreciation and a revaluing of spiritual realities that he's, he's using trials and sufferings with things in the material world so that you begin to value these spiritual realities like he does. Christ being formed in you and God displaying his glory through your life where you read a book like Ezekiel and you think, God, this is not fair. This is not fair, the things that you're asking Ezekiel to do. But if God would use your life to communicate a truth about himself, what is that not worth? And so, yes, God orchestrates a famine. And then his first word to Isaac is, don't leave this place. I want you to endure this famine, but I will be with you. And like with Isaac, God appears to us in the midst of our trials through his spirit and by his good word. And he reassures us of his presence and, and commands that we look up to him in the midst of the wilderness around you. In the midst of the sufferings, in the midst of the trials, look up to him and to his promises and to hold fast with hope, keeping your eyes on his promises and taking the next obedient step. He doesn't give him a GPS of every single step that he's to make. He just says, I want you to trust me. I will be with you. I will bless you. So don't, don't go down to Egypt. Don't look to your own solutions. Don't seek to deliver yourself in your own strength but look to his promise and walk in obedience to his leading. And you're going to mess it up. This is lesson number two. God's grace is greater than our sin. Amen? You just know that's going to be good, right? But we resonate with it. You're going to mess it up. Isaac fails in a big time way, just like his father did. So sojourns in this land obediently like God says, but he's asked about his wife, and then rather than trusting God with the protection of his wife, he lies about her so that the men of the land don't kill him and take his wife. Now, it's hard to imagine a greater shame for a man who is charged with the protection of his wife than using his wife like a shield for his own protection, lying about her. And it's in the case of Abraham, Abraham describes to Abimelech in the aftermath of his lie saying, I was afraid because there was no fear of God in this place. And I thought, they're going to kill me because of my wife. And so that was the reason why he lied. But God reproved that Abimelech in a dream. And it was God who said, I did not let you touch Sarah in the case of Abraham. It was God who appeared to Abimelech and said, I didn't let you tr touch her. And I, I know that in the integrity of your heart that you have dealt in these things. Now ask Abraham to pray for you. And Abraham prays for him. And God heals Abimelech's house because God had made all the wombs of that place barren while they had Sarah. And Abraham left with the, <clears throat> with the protection of the king and the blessing of the king. So what compounds Isaac's guilt and his shame in this instance is that surely he knew that story of God's sovereign protection of his mom of God appearing to a king miraculously and saying, I'm keeping you from touching her. I am protecting her. So Isaac knew the protection that Rebekah needed came from God, not from his own lying to protect himself. And still he goes headlong 
into the same fear and self-preservation of his father. Then Abimelech sees Isaac and Rebekah Rebecca acting like husband and wife, which just as an aside, there was a fear of God in this place. Because it's not like civilization was more righteous then than it was now. But there was already Sodom and Gomorrah. God had already destroyed the whole earth because it had gotten so bad. So there was, even maybe as a remnant from Abraham's dwelling there, a fear of God in this place because Abimelech reproves Isaac and says, what, are you, what have you done? You, you could have brought a great guilt on us. So there was some element of a fear of God in this place. And I think we could do a whole additional message on how we act based out of un, unreasonable fear, out of self-preservation. And the solution of God for the society was not us acting in a fearful way or people liking us or getting people to, um, to believe on God while preserving ourselves. God's revelation came when he just did it himself. He came right to him in a dream and says, this is the deal. I've kept you from touching his wife. Now fear me. So it seems like there's an element of fear left over in the society from this instance. So you have a king of the nations reproving one who is literally the representative of God on the earth at this time. He's literally the ambassador of God, the chosen of God, the one on the earth who was blessed of God and in covenant relationship with God. And you have a king from among the Gentiles appearing more righteous than him. He uses this language what have you done? And it's the same language. You see it in Genesis chapter 3 with God confronting Eve. Eve, what have you done? Or God coming to Cain after the murder of Abel. What have you done? And in both instances of Abraham lying to Pharaoh and to Abimelech, both of these kings ask them the same question. What have you done? Here, he's supposed to be the representative of God, and he failed. Because of the stories of his dad and the examples of the faithfulness of God in the exact same situations, he knew better, and he failed. He failed so bad that a Gentile king, an unbelieving man, rebuked him and seemed more righteous than him. And I just asked this morning, have, have you been there? Does this sound familiar? where you had a responsibility to your family or you had a responsibility to your witness as a Christian and you blew it, you failed again. You just confessed and repented of the sin last week and you knew better and you, you failed again. And so what does God do? How does God respond to Isaac in the midst of his failure? Well, verse 11 says that Abimelech sends Isaac away with his protection. If anybody touches this man or his wife, he'll be put to death. But look at verse 12. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped, this is an important little phrase, in the same year, a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Now, this is not turning into some prosperity gospel message. This may not turn into you reaping a hundredfold. Uh, you put a dollar in the stock market and it turns into a hundred, right? But that's a good year. It's, this, this is a miraculous amount of growth. And it's in the same year that the rest of the region is experiencing famine. Don't forget the context. 
God had promised to bless him and promised to be with him. He says, don't go down to Egypt. Isaac blows it, and God stands fast to his promise. God blesses him anyways. God gives him miraculous returns on his sowing, supernatural reaping. And then later in the chapter, God doubles down on his promise. If you look at verse 23 through 25, later in the chapter, the Lord appears to him and says, I am the God of your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So God reaffirms his promise to Isaac. God's blessing of Isaac was not based on Isaac's righteousness, but God's. It wasn't based on Isaac's performance, but the unchangeable good intention of the kind will of God. God had determined to bless him, and Isaac couldn't change that by his sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. In the aftermath of great sin and shame and guilt, Isaac found the blessing and the mercy of God. Why? Lesson number three. God's blessing is sure in covenant with him. God's blessing is sure in covenant with him. Remember the language from the beginning of the chapter. God establishes his covenant with Isaac, but when he does, he says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, it's amazing. The law had not yet been given, and yet Abraham is said to have kept the law. His statutes, his commands, and it's all the same language that's used in Deuteronomy to describe the law. And it is just proof that when God rescues somebody by faith, he writes the law of God on their hearts. Abraham lived according to a law that had not even yet been given because he was made righteous by God on the basis of faith in him. And this blessing that God promises to Isaac is virtually a quote, a quotation of God's promise to Abraham after he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. And because of Abraham's faith and faithfulness, don't miss that, because of Abraham's faith and faithfulness, God extends his blessing Isaac. Isaac experiences the blessing downstream from another's obedience. It was not his own obedience that he was experiencing the blessing for. He was downstream in the wake of another's obedience because of a covenant that was made before he was ever born. His blessing depended not on his working, but on the God who has mercy. And so in the midst of his sin and struggles, in the midst of fighting over a well and all these things, God doubles down on his promise to remind him of his covenant love and his loving kindness that is based not on him, but because of a covenant that was in place. Now, you can go back and listen to messages on covenant from this same pulpit, but the, you need to remember that this covenant is this binding relationship that God makes or a covenant between men is made in the sight of God, and at the heart of it is union. It is God bringing us into his very nature and making us one so that now it's, I am a Christian. I belong to Christ, 
And he is the God of fill in your name. God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because of covenant. He, his enemies become our enemies and our enemies become his and his strength becomes our strength. It's all part of this great exchange. But what's amazing is that the writer of Hebrews refers back to this oath and links it to promises that we have in the new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, listen to this, verse 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, God swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. We see that in the disputes over the wells, and this oath that is this final agreement. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So I don't want you to miss what just now happened there. The writer of Hebrews is linking God's oath-making and covenant-making with Abraham to new covenant realities that we have. And it, he's saying God swore by himself because he desired to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose. So you need to hear God's care and love for you in that. He knows of your doubt and your unbelief. And he wanted to show you in a convincing way the unchangeable character of his purpose toward you. This is not just about Isaac and Abraham now. He's saying this is about you. We're talking about by faith waiting on the Lord and inheriting the promises. And he's saying follow their example. And the point is just as Isaac stood in the unchangeable grace of God because of a covenant that was cut before he was ever born, and God blessed him for the sake of another. So we stand in the blessing of Christ because of Christ's obedience. God tells Isaac, I am blessing you because your father obeyed. And because this relationship was in place, these promises were in place before you ever showed up on the scene because of the unchangeable character of my purpose. And so you stand in the wake of Christ's obedience. You are blessed in Jesus for Jesus' sake. Isaac was blessed for Abraham's sake. And God wants to show you this morning, convincingly, his unchangeable nature of his grace toward you in Christ Jesus. It's unchangeable. You can't undo it by your sinning, by your unrighteousness. He has, Ephesians 1 says, according to the kind intention of his will, he predestined you to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, to the praise of his glorious grace. Glorious grace. 
He set his love on you and has set his intention on you to bless you, and you cannot shake loose of it. This is grace. Just like God blessed Isaac because he belonged to Abraham, he blesses you because you belong to Jesus. You are, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, the offspring that God promised, the offspring that would be made as many as the stars of heaven. You are the offspring of Christ Jesus that Isaiah 53 writes about when he says, he will see his offspring because he rendered himself as a guilt offering in their place. So you are experiencing the blessing of Christ. It belongs to you because of Christ's obedience. It's the last cross-reference in this section, but I want to point this out and drive this home because we need this beaten into our heads because we don't believe it. We go back, you wake up every day almost like an amnesiac, like forgetting who Jesus is and what he's done and that you are actually an heir of God in Christ and that his blessing is yours apart from your working. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. It says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Writer of Hebrews now says, when Jesus said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and in burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the first covenant in order to establish the second. How did he do it? Because he did God's will. He fulfilled the law in your place. And then it says in verse 10, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. How are you sanctified? How are you set apart as holy unto God? By the obedience of Christ Jesus. Because he said, I've come to do your will. And because he did God's will perfectly. And he offered himself in your place. It says that you are now being sanctified and have been sanctified through the offering of Christ Jesus in your place. In a covenant that was made before you were ever born. And just like Isaac experienced the blessing of God in the wake of Abraham's obedience, we experience the blessing of God because Jesus obeyed. And now he wants to empower your obedience by his spirit. Which leads me to lesson four. Keep digging wells. Keep digging. When Abimelech sent Isaac away, Isaac went to the place where his father had dug the wells before him. He went back to the place where God had demonstrated his faithfulness, and he went to work. Isaac could have sat back in the blessing of God and just enjoyed his hundredfold spoils, or he could have wallowed in bitterness that once again, it seemed like God was going back on his promise. He, God had blessed him so much, and the other people were so jealous that they sent him away. And rather than fighting for his rights and seeking to stay there, he went away. And he kept digging in the land of promise, first starting in the place where God had showed his faithfulness to his dad, where they had in envy thrown dirt into the wells, 
and he sought to bring back up the blessing of God in the place where God had showed his faithfulness to his father. And then they fight over those. So he goes to dig new wells, and they keep fighting. In every place, he runs into opposition. But instead of giving up, or instead of just expecting the blessing of God to come without his involvement, he keeps digging wells. He keeps going to work. In the midst of opposition, he digs another well. And that passage of Hebrews 6 that we read, before he talks about the oath with Abraham, he, he talks about why God wants to so convincingly show you the unchangeable nature of his purpose. It's so that you would have this hope that is steadfast and sure, that you have Christ within the veil, in the presence of God, as an anchor for your soul, and that he cannot be moved. He is there, sure and secure for you. And so that's supposed to give you this unshakable hope, but that hope produces something. And the verses leading up to that, the writer of Hebrews says, we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope unto the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he's saying, you have this hope because of the unchangeable character and purpose of God because God cut a covenant with Christ before you were born and he's determined to bless you in Christ because of Christ. You have this unshakable, steadfast hope and that ought to produce something in you. That rather than a sluggishness about the promises of God, it should cause you to lean in in expectation and in faith toward the promises with hope. Isaac kept digging in the place that God called him by faith patience. But walking by faith requires that we, that we walk. We see this all over the scriptures, that this, this faith produces this work. It produces this partnership with God. And so we keep digging. We don't know when God will come through like he's promised, but we keep praying. We don't know when God will come through like he's promised, but we keep abiding in him by his word, and we keep sharing the gospel. We don't know when that friend is going to come to faith in Jesus, but we keep sharing anyways. We keep gathering for worship. We keep serving. We keep singing. We keep giving ourselves away and living in light of the promise, digging wells and building altars because God is faithful. This is, this is part of this partnership with God in light of the promise. He's promised to bless me in this land, not another land. And so I'm digging for the blessing of God here because this is where he put me. Eric, you guys can go ahead and come back up. They go into this fifth and final lesson from the life of Isaac. You see that you mentioned digging wells and building, building altars. The fifth lesson is that your life can be a conduit of God's blessing. And I know if I say, Eric, you can come back up here and I've got one more point and you guys can start to shift in your seats and say like, well, this fifth one may not be important then. Don't do that. This is really important. You can be a conduit of God's blessing in the life of other people. Now, I want to highlight this specifically with regard to your children, even if your children are out of the house, or your spiritual children. So it's everybody in the room, children or spiritual children. And the question is, what are we passing on to them? Now, I want you to hear this. Listen to this. You can either pass on to them and we are sinful habits 
that they will later use to excuse away their own disobedience. Or we can give them wells and altars that they can come back to, to worship. You see, this is what happens in the life of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac had a, had a road, like a rut that was already formed towards lying about his wife. He saw his dad do it twice, heard about it. So it's just easy for him in the road to kind of fall into the same rut because it was the legacy that his dad had given him. But his dad also gave him the legacy of commemorating the faithfulness of God and calling on the name of the Lord. That's why Isaac goes back to the wells of his father, the place where, where he's commemorating God's faithfulness, and he starts there. I'm going to go back to the wells of my father. I'm going to name them the same thing that my father did. I'm going to go back to Beersheba. God makes the same promise at Beersheba to Isaac that he makes to Abraham, and Abraham plants a tree there, and he calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So what does Isaac do? He goes back, and in the shadow of the same tree, he experiences the blessing of God, and he calls on the name of the God of his father. And so it's good, it is good to build these altars of remembrance, not so that you can worship the altar, but so that you can remember the God who is faithful. And I don't, I don't know what that looks like for you. I'm not going to sit up here and give you tons of ideas, but we should be creating regular ways for us to remember the faithfulness of God with our children and with our spiritual children, ways that they can come back to. The, the Bible calls them, or people have extracted from the Bible, calling these Ebenezer's. It's like stones that are raised up to say, God helped us here. And we want to come back and remember these things. And so over and over in the scriptures, you see people walking by. Hey, when you see these stones, I want you to remember this, that God brought us over on dry land. I want you to remember the faithfulness of God when you see this stone of help, because here he helped us overcome the Philistines. I want you to remember that we called on the name of the everlasting God here underneath the shade of this oak tree, because God showcases covenant faithfulness. And so we're now moving toward the Lord's table. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us to engage in this very same thing where God left us a covenant meal, just like the Passover meal of old, where they would have this regular memorial where they would remember the faithfulness of God and the deliverance of God, of a God who keeps his covenant. And in the same way, we get to come to communion and partake in remembrance of the covenant mercies of God. He has lavished us with grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. He has, before you were ever born, set his grace on you. And then at some point in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, he woke you up to this grace and gave you this faith to trust him, and he made you alive together with Christ. And so we come to this table to say, Jesus Without you, we would be dead in our sin. There is no grace. There is no hope apart from the blood of Christ. And if you've yet to place your trust in Christ, there is no forgiveness from God, no righteousness from God, no relationship with God apart from the blood of Jesus, apart from placing your trust in who Jesus is and what he has done, where he went to the cross and took your guilt and shame on his shoulders. And he experienced the judgment of God so that you could go free, so that you could have life. And death could not keep him in its power, so that whoever would believe in him would be raised 
to everlasting life with him. He has already gone into the presence of God as a forerunner for all who would place their faith in him. And so maybe you come to the table today and you feel the weight of your failings. You feel the guilt of your sin, just like Isaac in the aftermath of being rebuked by a non-believer who was more righteous than him. And I encourage you this morning, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. And Jesus says, confess it and forsake it and come to me. Come to me. You'll find rest and forgiveness and cleansing. Your sin, even from this past week, cannot change. That's why he calls it the unchangeable character of his purpose. He has determined to show his grace and kindness to you in Jesus. So repent and enter into your inheritance this morning. So we're singing a couple of verses before David comes up. Oh, okay. David's coming up. Um, David's going to come and lead us in that time. And um, I just encourage you not to let this time be some sort of rote ritual experience. This is a time for worship, for you to confess your sin and to have the assurance of pardon from Christ Jesus if you've placed your trust in him. So let's engage. Um, Man, I'm going to hand it right off to you and let you pray for us. Sound good? Okay. All right. Love you all.